When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do okay. you record can I, can your ask you? intro separately? Yeah, I do. Okay, so we can... But I can say, this is Mike and UV from the Future Thinkers okay. something. So, so I don't know, the Future Thinkers podcast? Yeah. The Future Thinkers collective? Future it's a lot of things now. You can just say from futurethinkers.org. Future Dorg, okay. Dot .org. Dot .org. Uh, yeah, Dork. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you guys are in Bulgaria which is uh, a Mediterranean area yeah. Yeah. with probably some history to it. It's one of the oldest, uh, the city we live in is one of the oldest living cities in the world. Mm-hmm. And the oldest living city in Europe. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? It means it's and been constantly inhabited for... 8,000 years. Yeah. Okay. And I guess, is there a lot underneath the city then? Yeah, it's, just like built it's, on it's really not a fun thing to, you know, buy real estate under uh, property that hasn't been explored yet or dug. Because if you uh, start digging to, you know, make a basement for your new building, uh, you end up finding Roman amphitheaters or coliseums or stuff underneath you. Mm-hmm. And um, that's all protected by law. So you can't, you can't yeah. dig anymore. Yeah. Do things bottom out though? Are there like weird like crypts and stuff that just collapse and then you don't have a I home? I haven't anymore? heard of that happening. It's because mm. all the, those structures are pretty solid. They're super solid. Yeah, yeah like Ro- marble. Romans and... built forever. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Wow. And is that how did you guys end up there? Is there family there? Is there connections? Or is it just was it just like a weird like dart on the map? We were doing kind of a digital nomad thing for quite a while. We left Canada in 2012, and then we were living in Southeast Asia, spent a lot of time in Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Bali, mm-hmm. just kind of moved around a lot. And then I'd never been to Europe. Um, UV being Russian, of course, had been coming to Europe quite a lot since she was a little kid and um, had some family in Bulgaria and wanted to come check it out and show me around. So we, we did. And... Um, it was one of the first times we ever came to a place and decided to stay and settle down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you guys, you said you were doing digital nomad nomading, which I assume is some sort of uh, work that's online. Yeah. Which is translated into what you're doing now. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, before we were doing kind of more service-based stuff, we would help with media production because we both have backgrounds in, you know, movies and... Uh, all kinds of content production music Mm -hmm. um so we were just basically helping brands to put together their media and make material out of it content out of it and um we were having a lot of weird and interesting conversations in the morning because when after we left for um you know to go to thailand we just suddenly had a lot more time because the cost of living was low and we were making our own schedule so we decided not to work so hard and um bought a bunch of books and just we're continuously reading some really interesting subjects and having conversations a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we decided to just start recording those conversations and that's pretty much where we arrived at today. So it started as a literal podcast. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so you guys you guys started just recording. I guess your intellectual development, and I guess there's probably another word other than intellectual that, that might be fraught, like spiritual or, or like mindful. I don't know the, the proper vanilla term, but you're, you you're right. You got it right there. Yeah, it's like a cataloging. That. Yeah, the thinking. It's a cataloging of our you... lives since 2012 or 13. 13 yeah. yeah, I think we hmm. were uh, kind of less open about our spiritual stuff for the first few years. We didn't talk about it very much in the podcast. So the podcast tends to lag in terms of what we're actually contemplating. It's not hmm. in real time for some of that stuff. Oh, okay. And we, more recently, we started being more open about our, our spiritual practice and all of that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, how recently? Um, in the last year, I'd say our episodes have become a lot more about that rather than just technology and social change. It's definitely a lot of it is rooted in psychology. And I think the bigger reason we've started to go down this route of, I wouldn't even necessarily call it spirituality, but it's just taking a kind of grand look at humanity and civilization and society and looking at past civilizations that have collapsed and trying to find, draw the similarities between ours and theirs and figure out, you know, how we can steer the ship to us all surviving, um, you know, Mm. through climate change or through these different social movements that seem to be dividing people. So we've taken a real kind of narrow, solid look at psychology and sociology and tried to figure out, you know, what makes people tick, what makes them motivated, Mm, a lot of subjects like that. And that's where the course is really kind of centered. Mm -hmm. And it keeps on coming back in my mind to this image of you guys sitting on top of these ruins, on top of these ruins, on top of these ruins. And you guys are like kind of your podcast just started digging and you're just talking about the forms, but then you were started talking about the murals and the content of civilization as you go on. Yeah, it to a degree. I mean, we're not really historically based. Like we, we just tend to kind of extrapolate from where things are now and where that goes into the future. To what happens if we all continue behaving this way? Mm-hmm. As, far, as far as digging, I think it's a really good metaphor for digging in the mind um, because it's yeah. not, we're not just reading books. We're also doing a lot of our own contemplative and meditative practices and trying hmm. to dis- discover how the mind functions. So hmm. that, that I've definitely described it as digging before, yeah. both of us. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think was the general direction of your podcast when you first began and how did that direction change uh and when did it become obvious that you guys weren't just doing intellectual work together i would you say wanted to do something deeper than that it was it was always kind of about doing something deeper um you know we we had watched some or i'll speak for myself i was kind of more into the technology side of things singularity kind of stuff very heady you know futuristic utopian kind of things and um that was the initial focus i suppose on my side of the podcast and then you were more on the psychology and we kind of met in the middle somehow Um, But both of us really wanted to have some sort of impact, at least on on people. Like, how do we change people's lives or make them think about these topics that aren't really common, commonly understood yet? Um, But as far as the transition into more spiritual subject matter, I think we just got a little braver. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because we've all we've been practicing this stuff for a long time, long before the podcast. 
Um, I mean, yeah. we both started contemplating the nature of mind and reality and that kind of stuff in our teens. Um, we just, yeah, we were pretty private about it, I guess. And then as we mm-hmm. learned how to talk about it better, we started talking about it on the podcast. I think. Uh, what do you mean of, talking about it better? Like in like, a way was that, a link that is easier to understand. Um, in a way that's easier to explain because some of the stuff is kind of difficult to put into words and connect to different subjects and, and make sense of. Um, and as I'll speak for myself, as I got better at explaining things, I got more comfortable with talking about it. Mm-hmm. It seems that we're in, well, I think our era has been called actually it's been a while since I heard this, but the information age and doing sort of media production, you're, you're just pushing information out there more and more and more. Um, And everybody's doing that and everybody's got a podcast now and everybody's, well, maybe I should think of doing a podcast podcast is a new blog, which was the new, I guess, little zine that you did. Um, And so I'm interested in, in that question that you guys asked yourselves, it seems like that, well, what, what, what is the impact that we're having on the world? And, and it seems like information in and of itself, or even intellectual ideas can only ever have so much impact on somebody else's life. I mean, you're distracting them while they're going down the road, you're, you're edifying them, you're, you're giving them something to think about. But why did that feel unsatisfactory in and of itself? Why did you guys want to give people something more? And what is that more? Well, I think the more is, again, kind of why we left our original jobs and industries. Like we were doing this digital nomad thing and, you know, making content for other brands and stuff. And the conversation in this this sort of search for meaning really was the, the heart of everything we did. And we didn't think we would ever make an income from it or or if anyone would ever listen to it. Like we were so happy when we found out, you know, 10, 20 people were listening to the podcast way back in the day. But I mean, it was 2013 when we started this. So it wasn't, it wasn't that competitive of a time for podcast. And you could actually get some traction back then. And we were even a bit late to the the party at that point because we had heard from a lot of other friends while we were traveling around that, you know, that's the new thing. It's going to be just so saturated in a few years, but get in right now while you've got the chance. So we kind of jumped in and um, never had a commercial intent for it, never had like a, any any intent for it other than let's have interesting conversations and see what problems we can address and discuss between us and between guests. So... Mm-hmm. For that reason, I think maybe the growth has been actually stunted in a lot of ways because we're not chasing gossip or headlines. We don't do clickbait. We don't, you know, we don't do any of that stuff. We just try and focus on the most important or interesting conversation that can be had right now. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you mean by problems? Like, how do you, you said, like, what are the interesting problems that we can solve? Like, what are, what are the kinds of problems that attract you? Well, what yeah. you discuss on your channel quite a lot. I mean, the, the the gender question, the identity question, you know, a lot of the controversy surrounding Jordan Peterson and, you know, that whole intellectual dark web movement. I mean, we pay attention to that stuff quite a lot. We don't exactly commentate on it directly, but we look at, you know, what is the problem at the heart of people who are very identified with whatever label they happen to carry and uh, what would be the solution for that kind of way of being? And it tends to be more of this mm. spiritual, psychological deconstruction of identity 
that's really where it gets interesting. And we don't hear a lot of people talking about that. Like even Jordan Peterson is not really talking about that. He just says, clean up your room, take responsibility. But we're, we're kind of advocating people do some really deep self analysis and contemplation and really ask themselves, what is my identity? Why, why do I believe this identity is true? And what is actually true about reality too? What can I actually prove exists? So that the combination of what is true and what is real and who am I at the core um, has a very kind of documented history in Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, a lot of these like ex self-consciousness exploration kind of traditions. And they've mapped a lot of territory. So it's it's funny that, you know, there is so much mapped territory to these kind of psychedelic or, or transcendental experiences that people can go through through, you know, ayahuasca acid or deep meditation but you know there's a lot of territory that's mapped and you haven't been the first one to traverse it yeah that that's a good question because i okay this is a tired uh kind of area that i've walked with several guests and with myself quite a bit but let's go here <laughs> so social justice ideology um excites these problems of identity um, without necessarily giving a solution to the problem. And right now I'm going through and I, I'm, I'm being accused of beating a dead horse because I'm talking about the Evergreen State College and a protest that happened two years ago, but I'm not beating a dead horse. I'm giving the dead horse a vivisection and I'm going through every moment and, and cutting it all up. And what we see there, and actually you just brought this up, in one orientation, the, the professors and the faculty and the staff urged the students to uh, see the difference between truth and reality. Like, it's true that we're all one human kind, but the reality is that some of us are different. It's true that slavery happened a long time ago, but the reality is, is that it still affects our lives. And they start to deconstruct this difference between truth and reality and start to meditate on these really deep questions, but it seems like they're focusing on the oppression. They're focusing on um, what makes those identities real and valid in that moment was the historical weight and, and the oppression and the heaviness and the darkness of history, um, which gives it a reality, but it doesn't really lead to, I guess, enlightenment or revelation or whatever. One thing I think happens a lot is that people don't have a solid context for reality. They just look at their own personal situation and kind of measure themselves up against other people. And in Western society, we're actually quite privileged. I hate that word, actually. I shouldn't use that word. But we do have a lot of advantages over people in other places around the world. But there's that kind of teenaged angst type of emotion that that happens to all of us as we start developing and experiencing the world, which is like seeking out injustices in comparison to the benefits that you have. And if you just look around at your environment and you have no context for the greater planet, you think like any little micro, that's why the whole microaggression term comes about because there's literally no such thing as macroaggression anymore in Western countries. Like very little anyway, I should say. Yeah. So people are, are so focused on what to them is meaningful or salient, as John Verveke keeps saying, which I really appreciate. What has personal meaning to them, but not bringing it into a context of where is the rest of the world at? What does a real problem look like? Like a life-threatening kind of problem, not a social justice kind of problem. And I think that type of context 
would be pretty helpful for this. If people really knew what actual suffering was, not spoiled Evergreen State College suffering, but like what is what does it mean to to lose your partner to a disease or what does it mean to be starving or what does it mean to, you know, be in the middle of conflict and war, these kinds of things. And I mean, mm. if you just leave the country or stop thinking of your world in context of your own country, you discover very quickly that you're the minority. If you're living in a Western country, you're the minority. The rest of the world is living in a third world, basically. Just open yeah. up and look at that. So why are we so concerned with these like first world problems? That's kind of my view of this, and that's how traveling has informed my view of this. One one little quick uh, response to that you just made me think of is that, um, it, ironically enough, it's it, it's uh, it's a form of privilege in Western countries to be able to get out of them. Right? You're yeah. kind of in in a way you're kind of stuck in the midst of all this surplus, and you're kind of below a certain kind of level. You're kind of immersed in you know the, the bounty. Um, which can in and of itself have, you know, the, this reaction of, of uh, uh, unable to really act, um, uh, overreaction to small problems because you have no context of that. And so, uh, Yuvi, I'm, I'm wondering, like, where does psychology come in or like your studies in psychology come in to like situating ourselves in this, uh, you know, in this perspective or this proportionality of perspective? Well, um, I would say that people often tend to view themselves as static or view identity as static or, you know, um, whatever they, their experiences as kind of solid. So I, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily a psychology perspective. It's maybe depth psychology or transformational psychology, you could say, or spiritual perspective that at the end of the day, nothing about us is static because we are humans. We are living systems. We are not even objects. Like, you know, we like to think of ourselves as like an individual, a thing, but actually we're a collection of many, many different systems, many different cells. You know, every seven years or so, all of the cells in your body are replaced. So you're not the same person at all. And we have all these different feedback loops inside of us that determine how we experience reality and we actually have control to a degree not fully but to a degree we have control over those feedback loops and we can train ourselves to experience reality differently so you know how you can bring your attention to certain things and you start feeling certain emotions or you can pay attention to something else and you start feeling different emotions i mean that's that's at the core of all meditation practices or you know self-development where you just learn how to point your attention at different things and change your internal experience of the world so to me when i look at these identity discussions it's like they're missing the whole point they're talking about identity as if it's something solid, but it's not. You can change it. It's actually the most flexible thing about us because it's it's in our mind. Like that is the most flexible part of the human organism. You can't really change the function of your heart quite as easily. You can't change how your body looks to such a greater to such a great degree as you can do with your mind. Like yeah, of course you can go to the gym, but like the mind is the most flexible part. So when people start defending their identity, 
to me, that's just absurd because that's the thing that you can change the easiest. <laughs> mm-hmm. It seems that there's a developmental way of looking at you know human consciousness and uh, or even human history. Um, I'm very attracted to that way of thinking, and I think that identity in and of itself is uh, you know that how we think about identity develops as we develop and a lot of uh, unhealthy activity or a lot of crises happen on either a personal level or a group level when somebody gets stuck in, in a certain level of development and then reality kind of catches up to them. Um, and I wonder, like, as you guys have developed as thinkers or, and as humans, like, how has your identity changed and, and how has, how have you guys uh, used intellectualism and then, and then this, this deeper stuff, this meditation, this practice to kind of take the reins of your identity? That's such a good question. Mm-hmm. There are too big of a question. There's a lot of different angles to take that from, but the one that comes up most salient for me is one that has been asked a lot of people who've come to visit us and we've been chatting about this stuff. Um, and it's really the question of where am I in the brain or where am I in my identity? And I think a lot in the West, we kind of identify as this intellectual thinking being. We identify as the thinker, if you want to take the Buddhist kind of viewpoint of that. And that's something that I, I try to help men specifically to figure out and to shift because we're so in the head all the time and women will criticize us all the time for that. Um, the idea is you want to move down and you do this through meditation, move down the almost like down to the brainstem, your attention and your awareness and your your point of consciousness and notice that thoughts come in and thoughts go out and you're not any of those things that happen. You can generate the thinking function, but you're not the one thinking. That's a thing that you do. Thinking should be thought of as a thing that you do, not an identity. And once that, once you realize that, really realize that through experience, and all of a sudden, all the things that happen to you, um, all the events in your life, the, the emotion, emotion, the emotional response to those events, events become not, not you. There, there are things that are happening in the biology. There are things that are happening in the mind. And you can get separation and elevation from them and have a little more sovereignty and decision-making ability over which ones you choose to follow and engage with. I would add to that that there's kind of this, um, there are two sides to this process. One is what Mike is describing, like getting distance from different processes in your, uh, in your brain or in your body and realizing that they're not you, uh, kind of having this detached observer perspective. And then there's the opposite of that process where you completely embody something. So, and, and learning to oscillate between these two processes and kind of really uh, understanding that continuum is mm. a lot of what, what happens in meditation, especially things like Vipassana. So women tend to be uh, naturally, I would say, better kind of at embodying just because of our biology, because women are you know, designed to give birth and take care of infants. Mm. And a lot of that is really nonverbal and kind of involved. Um, whereas men t- tend to be better at uh, tracking getting... strategy, you know, <laughs> lobbing objects, a distance with their hands. But, you know, in terms of um, the 
this two sides of this process, you know, getting detachment and kind of observing yeah. things impartially tends to come a little easier to men. But I think that regardless of your gender, it's, you know, practicing both of those uh, really helps. And eventually what happens is like, you kind of just realize that your identity is, uh, is fluid. It's constructed moment to moment. Like it's not just a construct, like a thing, you know, because in uh, a lot of this kind of social justice theory, they do talk about, you know, the social constructs and identity is a construct a little bit, but it, it goes deeper than that. Like They take it too far into a place of ignoring ignoring kind of evolution, I think, in a big way. So they'll, they'll say gender is a construct. Like they think everything's a construct, a social construct. It's mm. from how you've been brought up and socialized with others. So this is another part that I think Yuvi and I like to bring into our practice and when we're teaching other people is like, find the root of your behavior in your evolved, uh, in, in evolution. Why would you have evolved to have this behavior? What would be the context of, you know, that guy at the bar who's like flaunting and hitting on every girl he can and, you know, popped collar, all of that stuff. Like, what is he actually doing? If you see him in, in context of like a, a peacock or something engaged in a mating ritual, it makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Um, UV brings up the the notion of embodiment and i want to get more into that because that's something that you know you bring that up i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) like i'm way over here my body's over there um but it's fascinating because in the social justice lingo they constantly talk about bodies they they take the identity which is purely uh, a mental thing and then they try to root it in the bodies i'm a black body i'm a trans body i'm a i'm a gay body and and it's just this weird kind of mixture of utter dehumanization of of what a self is at this point all i am is an atom in this field and i have no responsibility for my behavior because everything that i do is just a part of history is a part of evolution and so i'm justified in doing whatever i want or i'm just it's this weird inversion of this kind of complete uh relinquishment of the identity into this identity thing um and i'm just i'm thinking about that because that's the language that's being used during this protest to get everybody to act in this mob mentality and and going into that and watching how in sync everybody becomes in this two-day period everybody's chanting the same thing doing the same thing and and i think of it as a holographic sense making where everybody has a little bit of the of the picture but nobody really has a handle on what's going on so there's it's a cult without a cult leader mm-hmm. um and i think that, that there's probably some sort of evolutionary basis to how this this th- behavior happened but um i'm just wondering could you explain a little bit more about how does one become embodied in their embodiment or how what what is the uh what is the practice of of being situated i guess Sure. So in this case, what I'm talking about when I say embodiment is being so present in your body that you don't experience yourself as a self. You experience kind of um, yourself as part of whatever you're doing. So uh, let me give an example. Like, uh, for example, if you're uh, doing sports like skiing down the mountain or doing something really, really intensive, 
you get get into this flow state where you don't feel a sense of self anymore. You just kind of feel like you're one with the skis and you're one with the mountain and you're just completely immersed in all of it. So that's what I talk, that's what I mean when I say embodiment. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like you're fully in your body, in your senses to the point where you're not observing your senses or thoughts or anything else as external, like it's mm. all just one thing. And mm. then uh, on the opposite of that is what Mike was describing. So like getting distance and observing all of these things as an impartial. I, uh, I should explain that better. What I meant by moving moving the point of identity downward is really to the body mm-hmm. like it's away from the mind into the body and realizing that you can put your attention either of those places and we tend to choose thought or you know construct identity all of these things we choose that instead of choosing to be in the body and that's you know what uv's describing is what i mean when you bring that identity position down yeah and so we're not talking about either of these modes as being optimal or better than the yeah, other right the, or right um they're just kind of different capacities that humans have and uh exploring both of those capacities and expanding them to their limit and past their limit is how you really get self-knowledge yeah i'm wondering about like the ethic or the ethical dimension of this because there i, I grew up christian so there's this uh there's this resistance within Christianity to Buddhism because the way that Buddhism frames uh, the project of humanity is like this letting go and this this complete relinquishment. And for some reason, in my version of Christianity that I grew up in, like you only ever surrender to God, and God is this very defined entity, um, and that's the only thing that you are allowed to surrender to or to worship. You can't just open your mind because anything can get into the mind so that brings up the the question of when you do let go and when you do surrender into an event or into a process or into a practice um how how do you understand whether you're going in the right direction like what are the feedback loops and what is the what is the development of the moral or the ethical sense Um, Because it seems to me like to be a muscle, like where you can tell if I'm treating the right person the right way or if I'm saying the right thing to the right, um, the right way to a person. And if do you guys explore that or is that interesting Mm -hmm. at all for you? So, yeah, just comment on Buddhism first. So I don't consider myself to be a Buddhist. Um, Some of the practices that I've explored uh, come from Buddhism or are related to Buddhism. But I don't operate from this framework of kind of a way of life or like what's the human project from the Buddhist perspective. Um, I actually grew up Christian, um, or at least my mom was Christian, Russian Orthodox to be specific. So I guess it's kind of related to Catholicism. Um, And my dad was an atheist, so I got both of those perspectives. Um, But in terms of the experience of surrender, I would say that it's important for me at least to recognize kind of the holistic situation of what's what's happening there because um, how it affects other people matters and how it affects you in the long run also matters. So it doesn't always happen perfectly that way, but I like to think about it as kind of as 
I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Schmachtenberger, but he talks about this as omni-win. So basically mm. that your well-being is uh, preserved to its highest degree. The well-being of those around you is preserved to the highest degree or, or improved. Um, and the well-being of the planet and everything that is alive here is preserved or improved. So it's kind of, it's finding this balance. It's not going into extremes. I'm noticing this thread happening here in the conversation now, and it, I want to bring it back and loop it into what UV just said. But you said something about people wanting to assemble into groups and having kind of their own holographic piece of the, the grander idea of what they're there for. And um, so there's this tendency of people to want to, give up their sovereignty to something else in in exchange for meaning or purpose or belonging to a group. And that's a deeply evolved um, trait of human beings being very social creatures as we are. If you were, if you did something wrong in a group situation in tribal times and you got kicked out of the tribe, that almost certainly meant death. So we've evolved in such a way that, you know, gossip and caring about what people think of us is um, very high on the priority list, whether we're conscious of it or, or not. So this idea that we would be willing to give up our personal sovereignty, our own decision-making and, and awareness and control of our own minds and the environment and an analysis of the environment um, to some sort of meaning structure like Christianity or like any of these kind of religious groups. Um, or non-religious non groups that yeah, operate any, as really, religious groups. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Any kind of group that gives you a sense of belonging is fitting into this evolved desire to belong. And so what we're really advocating is at least becoming aware of that and, and to not give up your sovereignty. You can get that feeling of belonging, but you don't have to give up your sovereignty. You can be critical of the group that you are a part of, and you can not agree with every single thing that they say every policy you know it doesn't mean that we fit into left and right wing in the political spectrum like you can be somewhere in the middle it is a gradient yeah. so um you know this is something we talk about a ton on our podcast the, the concept of sovereignty um self-awareness um awareness of your perceptions how you're taking in the world awareness of the sense-making models internally that you are employing to those sensory experiences like what you know what, what would be an example of a sense-making so model it's, it's what things mean to you and how do you determine what they mean so for example if uh, somebody screams at you uh, do you perceive it as an attack do you perceive it as them trying to get your attention or maybe it has nothing to do with you at all maybe they just had a bad day so that's sense making, like how do you make sense of what's happening and are you aware of the processes of that your mind is going through to make sense or are you just kind of looking through that and are unconscious of it? So sovereignty mm -hmm. in, in the definition that we talk about it is basically just self-awareness of these different kinds of processes and learning to um, not necessarily control them because it's not about like having full control over what's going on, but just to understand what's going on and be able to direct your own mental processes. So now to loop it back to the morality and Christianity question, it's the way I view it, and I could be wrong about this, but the way I view religion is a response to people's natural desire to want to give up their sovereignty and, and belong to a group 
and for these organizations to want to somehow make society function properly. So they write things down and they say, okay, Ten Commandments, this is how we believe a functioning society should work. Or, you know, every, every religion's got their own equivalent of some rule set that you should follow. And when it comes to Buddhism it, or some of these more contemplative practices, there aren't really a lot of rules. Or at least, you know what, I should discard the Buddhist thing and really just talk about what it's like to be sovereign. So if you operate from your own sovereignty and you recognize that other people have an experience as rich and, and whole as your own, then that whole do unto others as you would have done unto you rule becomes the automatic best thing you could possibly do. And it's something, instead of giving up your sovereignty to some religion, you can just say, would I like that? Probably not. Then I shouldn't do that to others. And it just becomes such an easy thing to be part of a functioning society. I, there was that, I, I was just thinking about this last night. I was taking a break from video making. And I was playing Spider-Man video game, you know, like swinging around the city. And the I was thinking about PS4 Kant. One? Yeah, the new nice. one. It's actually pretty, uh, pretty relaxing. Yeah. It's very meditative. <laughs> um, and I was thinking about Kant. Uh, I, I can't remember what it's called. He's got this moral, this moral kind of framework or this uh, calculation, where uh, if 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 it's bad for other people, then it's bad for me to do. I, I can't remember how he formulates it, which I really should because it's like a foundational concept in Western thought. But I was just thinking about like this exponential kind of thought experiment like if 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 everybody around me started to value this behavior it would translate how would that translate into the erosion or the construction of the next event or the next emergence um well think about um, it in terms of law like how often do people instead of using their own moral compass go instead to what can i legally get away with and they find loopholes in legal systems to do horrible shit to other people yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think you. I think yeah. net net, it would probably be a really great thing for society if we all just use yeah. that framework. But it, it. And this is this is the problem that comes up again and again and again with uh, with good thinking or good thoughts or or self development. When you start thinking on a systems level, the question automatically becomes. How are people going to game this? How, and that's that's the one one of my main arguments against social justice um, that that I think it, it's it's not an attack on social justice, but but the argument against it is that how can this be exploited? Because it seems like it's very easy to exploit, and that in and of itself is a good enough reason to be wary of it and to deconstruct it and to think of something better. Yeah, um, I feel the exact so, same way. So within like uh, contemplative, uh, I guess you guys root it constantly in personal responsibility. This this uh, this guiding light or this lighthouse of sovereignty uh, keeps you guys on course or keeps you guys coming back from going too far out in any direction. And I, I'm wondering if if you guys have thought about um, developing tools to help society. And if you're seeing like the tool, how is it going to be corrupted or how how does the knife become a weapon and and or, or a hammer become a weapon you know that that every tool is a weapon thing have you guys thought about that or yes yeah group practices and how do you stop being a cult or going down that path yeah yeah definitely have thought about that a lot and um which is kind of why 
we have ended up with the sovereignty framework because it seems to safeguard against a lot of those things. So uh, if people practice having sovereignty, practice having self-awareness and uh, recognizing that there's something to their internal authority that uh, can override the authority of others. So like, you know, if some political leader says, go jump off a bridge, you should have enough sense not to do that because it would be harmful for you. And I mean, this is a stupid example, but you know what I mean? It happens every day when, you know, somebody of authority says, oh, we should all do this. And then people just follow blindly. So mm -hmm. sovereignty guards against that. Um, but it also guards against arrogance in many ways, because it's about taking responsibility and about constantly recognizing that, yeah, you make mistakes and you're not perfect because it's like the it's encouraging self-awareness, right? So um, the second part that we haven't brought up yet is shadow work. So that's investigating your unconscious mind and uh, kind of all of the animal tendencies that we still have uh, and all of our darkest thoughts and all of our deepest fears and all of those things and recognizing that it's not really possible to get rid of all of that. The best thing you can do is become to become aware of it and somehow learn to channel it in a more you know socially appropriate and productive way while at the same time learning to accept yourself that it's it's all right that you have these tendencies like it doesn't make you a bad person as long as you don't act on them you're probably going to be okay so um that's something actually that i applaud jordan peterson for bringing into the mainstream is the talk of the shadow and the unconscious. He's kind of, um, you know, has created a revival of Jungian or an interest in Jungian thought, which I think is really great because mm -hmm. there's so, so much of the mind that is unconscious. And yeah. uh, a lot of the kind of recent thinking has been more focused on conscious thought. So having that yeah. piece is I think important. one of the consistent mistakes that humans make is that we we have this capacity to separate ourselves from the environment, a capacity to manipulate the environment. And what we end up doing in order to do that, we separate ourselves from everything else. So, and this happens in every aspect of human behavior or life, but within spiritual practice or contemplative practice, the, the individual separates themselves from everything and separates themselves from the darkness, separates themselves from sin, separates themselves from as you put it, the unconscious forces and that, but that separation is, it's, uh, it's not even a wall. It's just this, uh, this, this screen, um, that, that one is pretending that is there and, and going back and, and being able to separate yourselves from yourself, from your instincts, it, it's good. It's necessary to stand apart from nature in order to, you know, arrange it, to organize it. But, um, it's it's really difficult and you talk about this and i guess peterson talks about this but you guys are interested in exploring this it, it it's unhealthy to to do that too much because you're going to get you're going to get again exploited by all these unconscious forces if you don't recognize them so how do we how do you guys initiate that process of, of reckoning and recognizing uh that that shadow or that the that which is underneath the floorboards. Well, it's why UV brings up the embodiment thing. It's such an important mm. part because 
you know, you want, like you said, you want the distance, but that's only half of the whole thing. Like you, you want to actually really be those things as well. You want to experience them at a depth so you understand your own limits. So, and like, like you said, there's ways to channel all of those energies into something more productive. And, you know, you've brought up Jung. He has kind of this framework of the archetypes that you can embody and use and study and understand the way that, you know, a deficit in a certain archetype like the warrior, um, like a, the passive version of the warrior, of the warrior, warrior's shadow, might result in you being a weakling and not being able to have the confidence and drive to go out there and exercise your will. And that's a necessary thing if you want to be productive and in functional and successful in Western society. You do need to exercise your will, make decisions. Uh, be decisive but then on the other end of the spectrum too much of that will make you a tyrant and make you sadistic and harmful to other people so there is sort of this balance for each of the four archetypes masculine archetypes i should say that just by studying it and becoming aware you can find where you are on the whole spectrum and balance yourself to the center so mm -hmm. another one would be the magician you know um I, I don't know do you want me to go through these we can we can do that sure yeah this is fun is, is this fun for you yuvi mm -hmm. so yeah tell, tell me, me the magician's power <laughs> you do this one <laughs> sure well i would say actually these uh the um gillette and Moore are the um writers of this book that mike is referencing so it's called uh, warrior, magician, lover, king. King, warrior, magician, lover. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these are uh, commonly considered the four most prominent masculine archetypes, but they also apply to women. And then feminine archetypes would be basically the feminine versions of those four plus the mother archetype, and that's more okay. kind of biologically based. So the magician hmm. archetype could be you know talked about in the masculine sense or in the feminine sense, um, but the kind of the passive version of this is um, not recognizing your own power and creativity and capacity to investigate reality and manipulate reality. Um, and the active hmm. version of this, uh, the overactive, is being too manipulative and being kind of a know-it-all and... Gaining deep knowledge but not sharing it with anyone. Yeah. 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 And so... Again, you know, we come back to like being on the extreme is not good, like getting to know where those extremes are inside of you through some sort of meditation or contemplation practice uh, is really good. But then when it comes to your action in the world, becoming some sort of a balanced version of those things is probably most mm. optimal. Or if, you know, obviously people have different personalities and different capabilities, so maybe leaning slightly to one side or the other is all right, um, but not going too much to the extreme. We actually have a four-part, or no, it's more, it's like eight-part series on the archetypes um, that we cover on our podcast. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should reserve that for that kind of extended content piece. But Sure. More. I just wanted to bring it back to embodiment. So it's... It's having this very full body experiential knowing of what it's like. So, for example, when we're talking about exploring the shadow, it's not just recognizing kind of a, as an observer. Oh, yeah, I have this anger at my dad because he did, you know, didn't give me enough attention when I was little or like he punished me or whatever. You know, these kinds of common things that people start discovering when they start investigating their own mind. Um, 
well okay so what does that feel like to be in that experience to to be that you know four-year-old child and experience that and bringing yourself back to that experience and then recognizing oh actually when i'm in this exact embodied experience i feel like i have no power because i'm four right like i don't understand the world i have no power in the situation and then recognizing that the patterns that were created as a result of whatever experience are no longer applicable. And people often have patterns, you know, that are based in childhood experiences, but by embodying that experience and recognizing, oh, actually now I do have the power to change my situation and I can respond differently. So that's how uh, embodiment can be used to kind of yeah. Work, work through some of those shadow patterns and become better. It's interesting. I I, I heard a little uh, voice, not in my head, but I, I was just perceiving a voice out there, this attitude out there about this kind of work. It's like, well, why would you want to do that? It's a waste of time. It's foofy. It's, it's narcissistic. You're exploring all these things. It doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really do anything in the world. And... I'm not saying that at all. I'm just, uh, I want to bring that, that kind of attitude into the conversation and ask you, your guys' position on that voice. But I was just thinking, you know, the world starts to act really crazy and we want to know why, or my life starts to go down the shitter and I want to know why. And it seems like your guys' proposition is to start asking the question. Um, or, or to start asking a series of questions of where's my attention, what is, and, and when you start asking where's my attention, then you can start to, to map out, well, what are all these other things that are going on that I usually, usually because they just, they operate, and when they operate, everything's fine, but when they get out of hand, I need to start to initiate like this process of self-discovery and of societal discovery of like what's really going on here, guys, because it's, it's going out of control. It's the, the same reason you would train in, you know, why let's take Sparta, for example, the movie 300. They would train these warriors all their lives from young, a young age to be able to be the most effective when the time, hopefully it never came, but if it ever came, they would be the most effective. So you can say it in the same way um, about investigating your fears. Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, actually. He, he said, one of the best things you can aspire to do is to be everyone's rock, be this most stable person at your father's funeral. And I, I love that way of saying that. I, I, mm. I think that's incredibly value, valuable. And I've been to quite a number of funerals already. And I think that is an incredibly valuable thing. Like people, That sticks with people forever. Like that emotional support and recognition of someone who's seen it before and, and struggled. So I think that's part of the reason, one of the reasons you would do this investigative work, ask these questions. It's not all just like, how do I optimize myself to be more productive during the day? It's like... You know, really deep, meaningful family life kind of questions that you can you can truly find answers to. Um, and the other part would be, you know, how are you on a day to day basis? Are you feeling generally anxious? Do you have kind of fears in the back of your mind about you know your prospects for the future? Um, are you are you feeling jealous? Like any of these kind of typical emotions you feel on a daily basis these are all really dealt with in this process we're describing uh, i mean you can be anxiety free you can sleep well you can 
be productive and be clear minded, know your purpose and direction in life. You can do all those things. And if you do any kind of study of successful people, you, you can really see that that's something they've worked on. There's another part to it as well, because as you mentioned, Ben, there's a lot of chaos in the world right now and things are kind of going sideways in many different ways. And whereas in the past, this might have been more of an optional process and people could just function with all of those things being unconscious. Now, there are so many forces that are pushing and pulling us in different directions, sometimes on purpose, like, you know, some of the most brilliant engineers go to work for companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon that, you know, design algorithms to manipulate your behavior um, and manipulate your attention. So some of those things are designed that way to pull our attention in different ways or manipulate us. And some of those things just kind of happen, like different changes in society that affect you, you know. Environmental catastrophes, mass shootings, all of these things. Yeah, so we're being pushed and pulled in all these different directions. And having, developing our sovereignty, developing our self-awareness, understanding our own unconscious tendencies, um, it becomes a really important tool to navigate these stormy waters. It's like... Yeah, it's like you're either in a in a little, you know, boat a dinghy. <laughs> in, in a dinghy in the storm or you're in a really solid ship. And yeah. so building up that ship is what this is exactly. It's like being able to withstand the storm and not crumble. That's why I chose the Spartan metaphor. You're training for something that you hope never happens. Mm-hmm. But yeah. We, you can just look around and know that happening. these things are happening. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was just thinking, um, and I didn't want to broach this topic on my own, um, but about that, the shootings that happened last weekend or a few days ago mm-hmm. uh, in America, and uh, and I, I don't like talking about death. I I think that um, I, I got criticized once because somebody on one of my uh, episodes said that their mom had just died, and and I did not, um, you know give my condolences on camera. I kept that off the camera because that's not something that I want to make a performance of. I do not want to make a performance out of my reaction to death. I think that that's a sacred thing. Um, But I can talk about the performance of how people react to death. And with the shootings, what I saw, of course, was people were scrambling for the blame. Like, oh, this this shooter was a right-wing nut job. It's Trump's fault. Or this shooter was uh, he praised Antifa. It, it's Antifa's fault. And people were scrambling to, to blame the shooter's action on this ideology when it's that very ideology that caused them to act that way. It's that, that very act of blaming. I'm going to go out and I'm going to blame this other group. And then these people capitalize on this righteousness to to say oh well now we can win more people over to our cause which is the the same exact thing that's that's causing that war and and i just wish and you can't do it but i just wish people would just like just stop and and preserve that performance watch what's causing them to want to perform in this way to react in this way and and to hold the space for the families for the reality and not not cause that reality, that tragedy, to, to feed into more tragedy, to, to feed into more reaction. And, and, and you can't do it because it's social media and people have to say things. But I just wish that people would cultivate that and, and just to cultivate the understanding of how they are making more waves. 
by by reacting to a wave like it just seems so simple but yeah you said it perfectly yeah i have no comment mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it <Agreed>. i unfortunately <laughs> i have to go and um talking to, speaking about um drama uh there's a professor who's getting investigated by his university for uh for some stupid thing but um i have to go and help him figure out what's going on or at least let him tell his story which should be interesting but what's next up for you guys or what uh what are you guys doing in the world right now and and where where is your project going we have three main things on the go right now and i don't really know how we're getting it all off the ground but um we have a two courses that we you know basically covers in depth uh, a lot of what we've discussed in this conversation um first one's about sovereignty the second one's about shadow work um so we just finished those a few months ago we've had i think probably maybe 50 60 people come through um and people are getting really interesting results from it um really positive results so that's the first thing and we're just trying to get the word out about that um the second thing is we're building a a new meditation app um that kind of just gives practical uh and how do I say it? It's kind of a process that we've stumbled upon um, through a lot of meditation, and it just covers a lot of ranges of the different types of meditations and tries to give you a functional, holistic meditation practice. So we're designing this app right now that covers you know a range of these meditation practices that we did we discuss on the podcast. And, and by app, used. you mean a web app or like um, a... a meditation app? So like a you know a, on, on your, your phone. on your phone. On your phone, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. there, it will be web as well. Um, so there's that. And then the third thing is we're going to be building a retreat center in, um, Bulgaria, which is where we live. Um, there's just a lot of things about Bulgaria. We've already discussed some of them, um, that I think make this place a really special place to do Hmm. something like that. So it's really going to be combining all three of those things, what we cover in the course, what we do with the meditation stuff, and then, you know, bringing people together and having a community. And we want to attract change makers and people in positions of being able to do something in the world and kind of bring them to this place and discuss these topics and help them have embodied experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so you guys are at freethinkers.org. Futurethinkers.org. Future, yeah, sorry, free, not free, future. Um, and and all your stuff is is on that website, and mm-hmm. people can find all your stuff. You guys also run a podcast and a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is there a schedule for that? How often do you guys put out content on that? Uh, it should be once a week. It's not. I think we've haven't done one for a few weeks okay. now. But generally, we like to say once a week. Mm-hmm. But we're lying. But when, when people when people sign up for your courses, they actually enter into you guys. We didn't talk about this on the show but you guys have like these conf- web conferences and you uh we um we circle. do this group call uh with people who have gone through the course um and it's usually only people who have gone through the course mm-hmm. um and it's become it's really about collective intelligence it's become really interesting because when people go through the course there's this kind of ego dissolution thing that seems to be happening and so we don't have any agenda or subject matter discussed before the the conversation actually happens which just kind of is free flowing and it goes where it goes yesterday's lasted three hours <laughs> oh wow okay um huh. and it's just everyone says they get 
so many synchronicities from it and so many things they were thinking about get discussed th- during that week's calls. So, yeah, those are pretty interesting. So, They're probably the most interesting thing. But cover, but it's just ground you guys cover. It seems like you guys are like an exploratory. You guys just go on these long exploration conversations. Yeah, that's. I would say that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're trying to, uh, I guess, do both like in depth and explore the breadth to kind of connect all the different parts because you know sometimes it's tempting to just compartmentalize things like oh this is about physics or this is about psychology but all of those things are connected so we we do try to kind of go broad but at the same time go deep in the areas that are particularly relevant to what we're doing so like psychology and meditation we go pretty deep and then some other things we kind of touch on without going too deep anthropology yeah yeah sociology Mm. (laughs) all the ologies Uh, yeah Mm. well thanks for so much for your time guys um i will direct everybody to your shop hopefully we can have another conversation and we'd uh, love it it seems like tons of places for us to go together but um uh, hopefully people will stumble upon and just adventure with you guys building a retreat center that sounds like a monumental undertaking yep (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome just add it to the list (laughs) yeah but i mean it's one of the advantages of us being married and working together is our entire lives become about what we talk about and we're both so passionate about this stuff that you know it's it's work all consumed wonderful wonderful um can you guys say goodbye Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks. No, I got to say though, uh, before we go, like I really, really appreciate what you're doing as well, and in, in just the depth of understanding that you have in these subjects that you're talking about. And I think there's a need for what you're doing. So, thanks for having us on and for doing what you do. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I, you you brought up earlier that you guys don't do clickbait, and I'm like, well, I kind of do a little bit of clickbait. <laughs> so, but hopefully, like, there's a network of you can be our clickbait buffer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm going to end the recording there. Give us some pointers on how to do ethical and meaningful clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be mindful, mindful clickbait. You know, you just, you, yoga pants, like, like it's right there. Like, that's all you guys need. Yeah, like it, that's it's true. Holistic, uh, you just know, a shot like of a butt in yoga body. pants in the thumbnail. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, in let's body, just do that. And body, then the title over top, top of it, done, done yoga, yoga pants and, you know. You know Deconstructing the identity. <laughs> Peeling off the identity. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bent over butt and downward dog. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>